Today is a very, very special day. Today is Chai Elul, the 18th of Elul. Chai means life. Hi, Dini, welcome. Hi. And today is the birthday of the Baal Shem Tov. And it is also the birthday of the Alter Rebbe, the author of the Tanya. They share the same birthday. When the Alter Rebbe was born, the author of the Tanya, the Baal Shem Tov made a feast on his birthday on that day. And he announced to his Hasidim that today, a Neshama Chadasha, a brand new soul, came down to this world. Because most souls have been you know, uh, reincarcerated. Is that no? But <laughs> 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 well, you know what? It's a Freudian slip because it's incarceration. <laughs> That's right. I've gone back to jail. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so his neshama has never been here before, and it came down with a special mission of bringing new light to this world. And this week's Torah portion is the Parsha of Kitavo, which is about entering the land of Israel. And entering the land of Israel, while it's a physical entering, it also is symbolic of a spiritual entering. It's, hi, Hashem. It's about whenever you want to enter a new spiritual pursuit. Anytime you want to enter a new spiritual pursuit, read the words of the verse. It says, be when you come to the land that God has given to you as an inheritance, and you will inherit it and you will settle it. Anytime you want to break a new frontier, there are two stages to that. There's first the entering, and then there's the settling. In order to enter, you need inspiration. You need like a reason why, a new excitement that you want to do something. But then it's not just about the excitement, it's about making it part of your everyday life. And that is about settling, and that's integration. And this is the path of the Baal Shem Tov and the Alter Rebbe. You first need to start off with inspiration. You cannot start, you cannot start integrating without having first been inspired. But once you're inspired to make it part of your everyday life, you need the integration. So the fifth Lubavitch Rebbe, uh, the Rebbe Rashab, said about the Baal Shem Tov and the Alter Rebbe. He said, the Baal Shem Tov was the, f- the foremost among the Mechanchim, and the, ba- and the Alter Rebbe was the firm- foremost among the Madrichim. This means that the Baal Shem Tov, whose birthday it is today as well as the Alter Rebbe's, uh, was foremost among the inspirers. He was like the penultimate inspirer. He was like Avraham Avinu, going around and reawakening the masses. When the Baal Shem Tov came to be revealed, the Jewish people were in such a state of, they were in a state of faint. They had lost energy and willpower. They had gone through the pogroms and the false messiah, the Shabtai Tzvi, and people were just broken, and the schism between the Jewish people was incredible. There was the, the learned people, and then there were the unlearned people, and the ignorant people, and the, they were like two classes. If people looked at the ignorant people like, who are you? And the Baal Shem Tev came around, and he inspired people with the joy of being Jewish, and how he said every single Jewish person is so precious to Hashem, more than an only child, born to his parents at their old age. That's how much Hashem loves every single Jew and it's not dependent on how much or how little they know. And he started to bring this love and this awareness and this excitement to the Jewish people and his name is Yisrael. Yisrael is the name of the Jewish people. When somebody faints, you call into their ear, you say their name and it awakens them, it speaks to their soul. Hi, welcome! And so the Baal Shem Tov, whose name was, oh, you don't have one either. The Baal Shem Tov, whose name was Yisrael, he was waking the Jewish people from a faint. It's like when he was revealed, it was like calling the Jewish people saying, wake up, wake up. That was Yisrael. And then the Baal Shem Tov then taught, the Alter Rebbe then taught us how to take the inspiration and to make it and integrate it and make it part of our everyday life. So the previous Rebbe said like this. The Baal Shem Tov showed us that we are able to serve Hashem. Each and every Jewish person is able to serve Hashem. The Alter Rebbe taught us how we are able to serve Hashem. So it's this two-step process. It's the first step of inspiration, of being on fire, of love for Hashem. And then there's the step of settling. Uh, somebody once complained to the Baal Shem Tov. He said, what's the matter with your chassidim? At the slightest provocation, they're all dancing, they're singing. Are they mad? He said, let me answer you with an analogy. One time, a very talented musician came to town. A very talented musician came to town. He was standing on a street corner and he was playing music. And his music was so moving and so uplifting that people just started to gather around him. And sure enough, before you knew it, they started to dance. 
all of a sudden a deaf man walked by and he sees that all the townspeople are waving their hands in their ears in the air and they're dancing and they're moving about. He said, what is the matter with the people here? Have they all gone mad? No, they haven't gone mad, but unfortunately you don't have sensitive ears. And so he said, the Hasidim are aware of the divine music that comes out of all creation. And that is why, at the slightest provocation, they are dancing. So I hope after today's chapter, we will get up and dance, because really, this is what this chapter is about. Sensitive ears. Sensitive ears. Being in tune to a, a higher reality. We have to be in tune to what the real reality is. And then about arriving, so you get the inspiration, but then about arriving, um, there's a story of a colleague and also a mentor of the Alter Rebbe. His name was Menachem Mendel of Vitebsk. He moved to Israel, and the, the Alter Rebbe used to send, he used to collect funds and send him money to support the Hasidim there. And that's, that, that charity fund that he started all those years ago, Kol Chabad, is still today, Kol Chabad. It supports the poor people in Israel. So when he was a little boy in Russia, every time he met an emissary from the Holy Land, he would ask them all about Israel. You know, tell me about the Kotel, tell me about Tiveria, tell me about Tzvat. And and everything they would say to him, and they, he would say, isn't there any more, isn't there any more? And finally, one emissary said, little boy, I hear that whatever I tell you, you wanna know is there any more. Let me tell you something, when you come to the land of Israel, hi, welcome, and every single day, and, and, every, and it's not just the Kotel, and it's not just Tzafat, and it's not just Tiveria, it's not the cave of the Machpelah, but when every single tree and every blade of grass all of a sudden speaks to you of the holiness of Israel, you will know that you have arrived. Now years later, after he moved to the land of Israel, one day he made a special like a, a mitzvah feast for his students. And in the middle of all the fervor and the excitement, they said, what is this about? And he told them the story and he said, today I was praying below the hills of Tzvat and all of a sudden I realized how every single tree and every single braid of glass and every single stone of the land is holy. And so that is the level of integration when it's not just the inspiration, but all of a sudden it becomes, this is who we are, this is what we feel, it's a new realization that we get, then you know you have arrived. So we're trying to get there. <laughs> right now we're in the middle of chapter 20 and chapter 20 was working upon the realization that a Jew is ultimately already connected to Hashem. We don't have to create a new love for Hashem, we're born with it. We have a divine soul which inherently loves Hashem. And how do we see this? Jewish people throughout the ages, no matter how illiterate, no matter how immoral and depraved sometimes, sinful, have given up their lives when they were faced with a choice of God or convert. They were, just get, they were choosing God. But why? These were people who were sinning their whole life. At that moment of truth, they were choosing Hashem. And the reason why they did that was because they had this inherent love that was always dormant. And at this moment of a test of faith, it just irradiated their very soul and no longer became something super conscious, but it pervaded their personality. So we're trying to tap into this power that we have that just we're not in touch with and lays dormant within us. So... When we understood that it's, we're coming to understand that it's very within our reach to keep the Torah, not just with our behavior, but with our personality. So we've come to understand that it's absolutely within our reach to keep the Torah with our personality as far as the first two commandments go. I am God, your God, you shall not have any other gods. Jews have given up their lives for these two commandments. But how is it possible to say that it's so within our reach to keep the entire Torah with our entire, with the very aspects of the, every aspect of our personality, even those mitzvahs that don't seem to be about the unity of God. So this is the new level of realization that we're coming to reach now. That guess what? You think that it's just the first two commandments that express God's authority? No, it is. Every single mitzvah is an expression of these two mitzvahs. Now we're working level by level. Hi, welcome. We're working level by level, and that, you know, you could say, Let me, just give me the bottom line. It doesn't work that way. You, if you want to lay the top layer of bricks, I think today we're going to have to share copies. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Um, 
If you want to lay the top layer of bricks, you've got to start with the bottom layer first. So we're working level by level so that we internalize the revelation and it becomes a part of who we are and what we realize. So um, now we're up to, we said that every single mitzvah was an expression of the first two, the first two um, mitzvahs of I am God, your God, and you shall have no other gods, the first two of the Ten Commandments. And then we said that these two commandments don't just, are not just the basis of all the other commandments in that, of course, you wouldn't be keeping the commandments if you didn't accept God as God. So that's why those first two commandments are the rest of the commandments. But no, there's something deeper in that. It's not just that they're the basis to fulfill all the other commandments. They actually include all the other commandments within them. In order for us to understand that, we have to understand what, is, what does it mean that God is one? We always think, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elkein Hashem Achad. It means, Hero Israel, God our Lord, God is one. There's only one God. He is the only authority. We have to understand, our sages call with Hashem not just the term Echad, which is one. They also use the term Yachid, singular. He is the only existence. It's not just that he is the only authority. He is the only existence. And when we come to realize that he is the only existence, we can understand how every single mitzvah is an expression of his oneness. Now, we started to work through and say that all of creation is but the word of Hashem. We said, what is creation? We're looking at all the worlds, all of the created beings, and we're saying, we said at the beginning of this chapter, that they are like nothing before Hashem. You take them and you compare them to Hashem, they are like nothing absolute non, non-existent. We say, why? Because all of creation is but the word of God. David HaMelech writes in Tehillim, B'divar Hashem Shemayim Na'asu, with the word of God, the heavens were created. Hashem said, you know, let there be light. Yehi or, vayehi or, and there was light. Hashem created the world, words, the world by the breath of his mouth, by words. So if you want to understand the essence of creation, you need to understand what a word is. So now, I bet you never thought so deeply about a word. We're going to look at what a word is and how it relates to the essence of a person and then come to understand how all of existence is as if absolute nothingness in front of Hashem. Now, the reason why we're saying this, and I'll mention this again when class is over, but I want to remind you, it's not because we're trying to make ourselves feel like hopeless and Hashem doesn't care about us, God forbid. That's not the case. What we're trying to do is we're trying to look at creation vis-a-vis Hashem and to see that creation alone, without the inner core of it, is, is absolute nothingness. And next chapter, we're gonna, right now we're just having an outsider's view. We're looking at the world, we're looking at how it is in relation to Hashem, and we're coming to realize that it's nothing. Next chapter, we're going to look at the insider's view and realize the value of the word when connected to its source. But right now, be patient. It might be a painful, but we're realizing that all of creation, we're going to have to let go, is really nothing, non-existent. Now, we did say, and I want to remind you, that we cannot say that creation is an illusion. We're not trying to say that creation is an illusion. The Torah specifically says, God created the heavens and earth. We're just trying to realize that although indeed it has been created, what characterizes its existence. Okay. We got up to, oh no, we're only, we only got up to page three. We're up to two lines from the bottom. So we said that all of creation is nothing when compared to Hashem. It's like absolutely non-existent. And it's nothing other than the word of God and the breath of his mouth that is clothed within these words. And now I'm going to read in the Hebrew. I'll translate and then we'll explain. Ulamashal. Kimai ben nefesh ha'adam, kishemadaber dibor echad, shadibor zelavade kiloi mamish, afilu legabe klolos nafshei hamidaberis, to illustrate from the soul of a human being. When a man utters a word, this single word is as absolutely nothing, even when compared only to his articulate soul, meaning the power of speech as a whole. Let's hi! We're sharing copies today. I'm so sorry. Excuse me. I'm so sorry. I'm late. But is there a ladies room? Yes. Right out the door. You see where the Magadevas are? Yes. Uh, there's an office over there. Thank you. On this side. 
So we're not speaking about the word compared to people outside of the person. We're taking the person and we're looking through his own experience. He says a word. Let's compare the single utterance, the single word that he said, compared to his power of speech. The power of speech within the soul is infinite. The only reason why people can't speak forever is because of the limitations of the body. But the soul's power of speech is infinite. It's not like every time you say a word, you take out one word from your storage house, and now you have one less word to say. Your soul can go speaking on ad infinitum, even though most people don't want to hear other people speaking forever and ever. But that's the fact. Your soul has the capacity to speak for infinity. So take this one word and compare it to the power of speech, which is infinite. You can't compare. It's like taking a drop out of the vast oceans. Now, the oceans are not infinite. The oceans have a number to it. In fact, the Talmud tells us of two scholars that were so brilliant, Rabbi Elazar Chisma and Rabbi Yochanan ben Gudgada, and the way they described their brilliance was that they were able to calculate how many drops there are in the ocean. So technically, the drops in the ocean can be calculated. And still, they had no clothes to wear and no food to eat. <laughs> The, the drops in the ocean can be calculated, but let's say the ocean was infinite. Imagine the infinite ocean. Yes? Is our divine soul infinite? Our divine soul is infinite. But we're just, our divine soul is not actually a creation. It's part of the creator, and that's what we discussed in chapter two. And it makes you feel better, right? <laughs> So just the power of speech, is, it, it, the power to speak is infinite. And let's look at infinity, look at like one tiny drop of water compared to the ocean. Let's say the oceans were infinite. We can't imagine infinity. If we were able to imagine infinity, we have then given infinity a definition, and then it is no longer infinite. So we cannot even fathom infinity. But imagine that you take out one drop of ocean from the infinite oceans. It makes absolutely no difference. Not only does one drop make absolutely no difference, a million or a billion drops of water make no difference either. When compared to the infinite, there's the same distance from one and from a billion. We don't, we can't, we don't even have a concept of that. That's why, like, you know, our conception of Hashem. You know, people say, Hashem is so great, too great to care about the details of the things that I do. Really. But do you have any conception of what Hashem is? Because Hashem is infinite. And just like Hashem cares about, has, could lower himself to con- consider the planets and the galaxies, that's how distant it is from him, the same way as if you keep Shabbos or if you lit the candles one minute on, on earlier than sundown or one minute later than sundown. Because he is so great, that's why he cares about the details. To say that he is too infinite to care about the details is to limit him. Hashem is absolutely infinite. So we don't even understand the quality of infinity. But just to say, one, from our own experience, one utterance compared to our power of speech is nothing. You have an infinite amount of words. So what is one utterance, okay? Which is the soul's middle garment, meaning the organ of expression, namely its faculty of speech. The soul has three garments, thought, speech and action, of which speech is the middle one, with action being lower than it and thought higher, one word has no comparison, even in comparison with this faculty. So we're looking at the garments of the soul, not even the highest garment, we're looking at the middle garment, which is speech, and we're saying even compared to the garment of the soul, which is speech, which is but a middle garment, one utterance has no value. Now, I don't know how deeply you want to go into the idea of the power of speech being a middle garment, but it's not just the middle garment as far as one, two, three. Thought, speech, action, boom, speech is right in the middle. It's also in its quality, it's middle. Because when it comes to action, which is our most external garment, it's possible that a person fashions, a, they, they, with their power of action, they fashion a dish, and then they move on. So they use, they use some material outside of themselves, leave something lasting, a person will come here and say, who made this dish? No one will know. So it's so external to the person that you can even look at it and not see the connection between the person, and the, di- the, the person who made the dish and the dish. Thought, on the other hand, is very internal to the person. You cannot separate thought from the person. The, th- the thought is the person's thought. It's very internal. It's the innermost garment of the soul. Speech, on one hand, is external. 
It's expressing yourself to those outside of you. Nevertheless, while you're speaking, everybody knows who's speaking. So thoughts, speech shares qualities with both thought and that you can see who's speaking. It's connected to its projector. And it also, speech, it also uh, shares qualities with action, being something of an external medium uh, impacting the world around you. You can impact the world with your speech, not just by inspiring people but, or otherwise, but also, you know, the example is given that in the, in the Talmud about if you're liable for desecrating Shabbos by doing certain things and telling your camel, like, to go and... So just by telling your camel, you can do an action. Nowadays, you don't need the example of a camel. You can say, hey, Siri, or what other mm -hmm. devices, and you can see that mm -hmm. speech actually does have an effect on the outside world. So we're looking at one utterance, and we're saying, compared to the soul's power of speech, which is infinite, and is only but of its middle garment, it's worthless. One utterance for the person means nothing. Surely then, this word has no value when compared to the soul's innermost garment, meaning that garment which is closest to the soul itself, namely its faculty of thought, which is the source of speech and its life force. Since thought is higher and closer to the soul than is speech, this one word surely has no value in comparison with it. So, we're moving up a step now. We said we're first comparing one utterance to the power of speech. Now we're looking at thought and we're saying, forget about if you look at the power of speech, look at thought. Thought is the, the source for speech and it's, it's life force. What does that mean? It's the source and it's, it's life force. Thought is only a garment of the soul. It's not the actual soul itself. Never, nevertheless, it is very innermost. It's a mode of an expression, but it expresses yourself to yourself. That's what thought is. Thought is an expression of yourself to yourself. Now, in order for you to say a word, you need thought. Speech is, thought is what brings the word into existence and what gives it its life force. What does it mean it brings a word to existence? You cannot speak without thinking first, although some people <laughs> seem to prove that wrong. <laughs> you cannot actually say a word without having some thought. And you could, this is something that Altarba speaks about somewhere else in Tanya, you could, in the, that you could even speak words and think about something else at the very same time, but not for the first time that you said those words. The first, if, like, you know, some, sometimes let's say you're praying and all of a sudden you find yourself thinking of other things than the words that you're saying, or uh, you're in the middle of doing something and your kid says, in a moment you're like, very, very nice, honey, and you may not even have sadly, <laughs> thought about what you were saying. It was just your reflex answer. Even though those words don't have thought at the time that you're saying them, they had to have thought the first time you expressed those words. So thoughts do not, words do not come into being without thought. Not only don't they come into being without thought, they don't have life without thought. What is life? What is a life force? Life force is taking something that's already in existence and giving it a whole new higher order of being. For example, you don't call a person a person just because they're a body. A body without a soul would not be called a person. What makes it a person is the soul that is breathed within it and gives it life. And that's what takes this sack of bones and flesh and turns it into a person. So the same thing, words without any thought in them are meaningless. It's like. There are four categories of being. There's the, the human kingdom, the animal kingdom, the vegetable kingdom, and the inorganic kingdom, right? In Hebrew, the human kingdom is called, we call a person a medaber, a speaker. Hey, parrots also speak. Why don't we call, why aren't they included in our category? But their words have no meaning. They have no life force. They, it's not words. Those are words without thought. When I was a new mom, and I just my oldest child still learning how to speak, and my daughter, my sister, we had daughters the same age, and I was noticing that kids the same age as my daughter were speaking before she was, and my daughter wasn't speaking yet, and neither was my niece. And so my sister was running a preschool then, and she said, listen, I want to tell you something. I see kids that speak very early. Some of those kids just 
parrot words that they say, but they have no idea what they're saying. It's not in, not in every case of a child just saying words is it a manifestation of great intelligence. Sometimes it's just a physical activity of saying blah, 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 without actually having any meaning to those words. What gives words meaning is when they say words that they know what they're talking about. There's a lot of bright children who talk late and they don't want to say words without knowing what they're saying. So thought is the life force of, of words. There's, there's a joke. You know, in the olden days, the way that they would marry off their kids is they would, if you had a lot of money, so you can get the brightest student in yeshiva for your daughter, right? So they would walk into the yeshiva and they would go to the Rosh Yeshiva and tell me, who's the smartest guy in yeshiva? And then they would say, this guy, say, I want this guy for my daughter. They promised the guy, listen, you could learn for the next 10 years. I'll support you while you learn if you marry my daughter, right? So this guy walks into yeshiva, this wealthy man, and he says, he says to the Rosh Yeshiva, I want the smartest guy in this yeshiva for a son-in-law. And he said, okay, see that guy over there? He's your man. Absolutely the brightest guy in yeshiva. He goes, okay. He walks over to him, and he proposes marriage with his daughter. He says, you marry my daughter. I'll support you for the next 10 years. I'll give you the most handsome dowry. And You agree? He says, yeah, I agree. So he, he says, you know, I'm not even waiting for the wedding. I'm going to give you the dowry right now. So he gives him this very handsome dowry, and then whenever he goes to a very important appointment, he asks his important son-in-law to come with him, and everybody's so impressed. Wow, this is his son-in-law. And this goes on for like a few months, and he says, you know, listen, father-in-law, you've been so good to me all this time, and you even gave me a dowry in advance of the wedding, but where's the bride? <laughs> he says, I'm so sorry, I don't have a daughter. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a joke, but the point of the story is, the point of the story is, you can't be a son-in-law if there's no bride. Words don't mean anything if there's no thought within them. So we're looking at, now we're taking one utterance, we compared it first to the power of speech, now we're bringing it up to the power of thought, and we're saying the power of thought is the source and the life force for words. Now go and compare one utterance to the power of thought. How very insignificant is that one utterance? Now we're going to move up a level. It goes without saying that this word is as not when compared to the essence and entity as opposed to the garments of the soul. The essence, it's supposed to be identity. It's a mistake. With the essence and identity of the soul as opposed to the garments of the soul, these being its ten attributes mentioned above, chachma, bina, da'at, and so forth, meaning the seven emotional attributes. So now, one word has no has no relation in compared to the power of speech, and it has even less relevance in compared to the power of thought. Now, to give an analogy, when we say one thing has no value related to something else, right? So let's say you say one penny has no value in relation to an infinite amount of gold coins, right? It's valueless, one penny compared to an infinite amount of gold coins. Or another thing you can say is a little piece of dirt has no value compared to an infinite amount of gold coins or a great amount of gold coins. What's the comparison? In the comparison number one, where we say one penny has no value in compared to, to the infinite amount of gold coins, it's true that it has no value only on one level, on its level of infinity. But if you look at the general theme and the character of one penny versus an infinite amount of gold coins, they actually share the same theme. They're both about monetary value. So the same thing, when we compare one utterance compared to the soul's power of speech, it's only incomparable insofar as the quantity, one versus infinite. But when it comes to the general identity, the character, the quality of one utterance and the power of speech, you can't say it's completely insignificant because they share the same basic value, the power to speak. But now, we're moving to, when we move to the power of thought, it's higher than that. So it's now comparing like a piece of dirt to an infinite amount of gold coins. And then you say, truly, it's no quality, right? But now we're moving even further. And we're saying that one utterance has no value not only in compared to your power of speech, not only when compared to your th power of thought, but now move up to your essence and identity. After all, thought and speech are only behaviors. But your essence and your identity, for all practical purposes, is your intellect and your emotions. When you compare one utterance to who you are, your very essence, 
There's absolutely no comparison at all. And we've discussed this before, but just to clarify, thought is not identical with intellect. Thought is a mode of expression. You are expressing your intellect to yourself, while intellect is like understanding. You, you can think things in your mind. You can hold thoughts in your head. Anything that I tell you to, to hold in your head, you can hold them, but not anything that I tell you to understand. If you don't understand it, you just don't understand it. You cannot, no command is going to help us say, hey, what's the matter with you? Understand this. It's not going to work. If you don't understand, you will not understand because this is not any more behavior. It's actually who you are. And this is your essence and identity, your intellect and your emotions. So take one utterance. And we're moving up level to level to bring. It's okay. Oh, my God. Oh, my it's a beetle. It's a beetle. It doesn't okay. sting. Not a horse. Okay, wow. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Great job, Natal. Yeah, let's close the door. Could somebody get the door? Let's just keep it closed. Oh, there's a window anyway. It doesn't do anything. Okay. Oh my gosh, that's Great job. Have you done that before? You cut it in your hand? They don't do anything. They're just beetles. Yeah, no, I catch them. They don't, they don't do it. They don't sting right. Well, thank you, Maytal. <laughs> so now, we could have started off comparing the one utterance to our essence and identity, but in order to understand the great gap between our essence and identity and one utterance, we're moving up level to level just so we get how insignificant it is. So we said insignificant compared to our power of speech insignificant compared to our power of thought, but how very, very insignificant when com we compare it to our very identity. Identity is intellect and emotion. That's right. And when you say intellect, you mean both, all three, chokhmah, binanda. That's right. All three. All three of them. Our intellect is composed of three faculties, chokhmah, bina, and da'at. That is, it's generally translated as um, wisdom, well, let's just do it in a different way. It's, it's inspiration and, and um, integration, no, uh, um, let's say cogitation for Bina. So, so Chachma is the, the flash, the flash of inspiration. Bina is the power to then cogitate and think about and expand the idea. And Da'as is application, what makes it relevant in our life. So that's our <coughs> intellect and our emotions are the seven faculties, which are Chesed, Gevur, Teferet, Netzach, Hod Yesod, Malchus. We're not going to elaborate on those? Yes. Uh, Rabbi once said that we should all try to always have makshavot, dibur, ma'asim tovim. That's right. Is those are our three, our three uh, garments of our soul. Thought, speech, and action, and we should be good in all of them. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get good not just in our action and not just in our speech, but even in the way we think. Chachmah is from is what a personality. What? Chachmah are our intellectual faculties, and the, the next seven, the seven midot, are our emotional faculties, and this is what makes you who you are. Every soul has like a predominant place that their soul comes from, um, and we all have the ten sefirot in our soul. But our soul is going to come from one of the supernal sefirot, one of the one of these, and it's going to have everything in it, but something about about where we come from is going to give us our unique identity, who we are. But each of us have the power of all ten. And these ten make up our essence and identity, who we are. Now we're going to explain why it is that the, our essence and identity is so way above our power of thought. For thought, too, like speech, consists of letters, except that the letters of thought are more spiritual and refined. Thus, thought and speech share a common characteristic. So you never thought about that before, right? Not only do you speak in a language, but you actually think in a language. So before we were saying that our power of speech compared to our, uh, one, our one utterance compared to our power of speech <coughs> is like a penny compared to an infinite amount of gold, while our thoughts are like a piece of dirt compared to that, to, to many gold coins. And we said it has no comparison at all. But that's only when you look at it from one perspective. Now let's go up one step higher. 
<laughs> I hope it's not getting too complex. You can only say that one piece of dirt has no significance to our value compared to a lot of gold coins or even one gold coin only at one level. But if you go up a level and say, one second, but they're both physical objects <coughs> which take up space and are composed of the four elements, fire, water, air, and earth, then actually they do share some type of common characteristic. As opposed to if you would take the piece of dirt and compare it to a rule of logic. A rule of logic exists on a different plane. It doesn't take up any space. It's not composed of the four elements. So at that point, it's absolutely completely nothing. So we're saying, okay, it's true that one utterance has no value at all in compared to our thought, but actually it has less value compared to our identity because what is thought? Thought is composed of letters and it shares a common characteristic with speech. You see, everybody speaks in their own language. Not only do you speak in your own language, you think in your own language. But do people understand in a language? You don't. Understanding is above language. It's prelingual. You, and you don't love or hate in one language. You're not going to say, this person loves in English and that person loves in Spanish. We all, the, love is an emotion that transcends letters. It is not characterized by letters anymore. Thought, which is still a garment, it's an expression of yourself to yourself, and it expresses itself in language, even in thought. But the ten attributes, Chachma, Bina, Da'a, and so on, are the root and source of thought. And before being clothed in the garment of thought, they as yet lack the element of letters. The letters are only formed when applies his thoughts to a particular idea or feeling, as explained further. Since the intellectual and emotional soul powers are so subtle and amorphous that they cannot be defined even in terms of the spiritual thought letters, they are obviously of an altogether different, more spiritual order than thought. And the spoken word is surely without any value in comparison to them. What follows is a description of the process whereby the letters of thought are formed. So you, if somebody's hungry, hungry, hunger is universal. It's not like one person is hungry in one language, a person is hungry in another language. It's something that's shared commonly by all peoples, no matter what their language is. It's only one you want to bring, say, okay, I'm hungry. Oh, what should I eat? When should I eat? How much should I eat? That's when you have to start taking your motion and garbing it in letters. Up until then, it is prelingual. It has no, it's not forced to be in any one language. And to show that it has no letters, there's no element of letters there yet, you could speak about the same thing in different languages, or even in the same language, you could use different words to describe the same desire, because the desire is not captured by letters. It is prelingual, and it's only once you start having to bring, implement your desire that you need to start garbing this intellect and emotion into letters. So now the altar is going to explain this to us. For example, when a man suddenly becomes conscious of a certain love or desire in his heart, before it has risen from the heart to the brain to meditate and ponder on it, it has not yet acquired the element of letter, letters. It is only a pure desire and longing for the object of his affection. So this is true about desire, but all the more so began, before he began to, to feel the desire in his heart, that craving for that thing, when it was yet confined to the realm of his intellect, chachma, understanding corresponding to bina, and knowledge, da'at. So you cannot have a desire. We're sharing coffees today, so sorry. You cannot have a desire if you did not have an awareness that preceded the desire. You know, the common expression is out of sight, out of mind. That's actually true. If you don't have an awareness of something, you cannot have a desire for it. So before you have a desire, you have to first have some type of awareness that fuels that desire. That's why we should, you know, when we surround ourselves with things like cake, then we get uh, aware of cake and want cake. But we, if we surround ourselves with good things that we want to have desire for, 
The awareness itself is what fuels the desire. So letters do not exist at all in the realm of intellect, of emotion, and all much more so do they not exist in the level of intellect, the awareness that fuels the emotion. How insignificant is one word compared to the very essence and identity of the person, his emotions and his intellect? Meaning that the thing that was, was known to him to be desirable and gratifying, something good and pleasant to attain and to cling to, as for instance, to study a certain discipline or eat some delicacy, then in this state of intellectual, of intellectual appreciation of the desirable object, before the appreciation even has developed into an emotion, there are certainly no letters present in one's mind. Now, the language of the Alter Rebbe here is very interesting. He uses four terms. He says, Nachmad, Vinaim, and then he says, Vitai, Viyafe. It's like a mixture of two expressions. One is that we were talking about the tree of knowledge of good and evil. <coughs> that the, the fruit was Nachmad. It was... It was Pleasant. It was something that was attractive. And then in the davening and the, the blessings after the Shema, that's something we say, all these words over here is also from the, the davening. So Rabbi Steinsaltz points out that this is very key over here because we have one mechanism of desire. It's not two mechanisms of desire. We have one mechanism of desire. And if we train our mechanism of desire, it can desire the right things. If we had two mechanisms of desire, then it would be very, very difficult to educate ourselves to want to have good passions because at the same time that we would have a passion for a good thing, we could have a passion for something that's not good. But you cannot have a passion for two opposite things that actually contradict each other in essence at the same time. It's, when, you're feeling, when you're totally in love with Hashem, at that moment that you're feeling desire and passion for Him, you're not at the same time going to want to do a sin. So it's very much within our reach to, to re-educate ourselves, to say we have this universal des, uh, element of passion, and it could be passion for good. The same terms that we use for the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, we use the terms of how holy and pleasant it is to be, you know, this thing of being, recognizing the oneness of Hashem. Only after the desire and craving has already descended into the heart, meaning after they have developed into emotions through the stimulus of his wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, only after they have ascended from the heart back to the brain to think on how to implement his desire by actually obtaining that food or studying that subject. The altar is taking into account everybody's unique kinds of desires. Some people want to get a really good food and some of you want to get a really good piece of knowledge. But at the end of the day, it's all about implementing a desire, whether the desire is for food, whether the desire is for knowledge. You first have to have an awareness of it. When you have an awareness, you think, wow, this thing is really good. All of a sudden, your emotions light up and you want it. The way you want it is just a simple attraction. It's a pull for the thing. Once you want to implement your desire, now it has to go up back from the heart up to the brain so your mind can now put it into words to think about how am I going to implement this desire. Awareness is that verbena. So uh, when I'm using the term awareness, I'm literally just using it for all three of the intellectual faculties, a general term for something that came to our mind. So it might have been sparked by any one of the three faculties. So can you repeat what you just said? About, like okay, really first you have an aware, you're thinking about how, how, how it works. First you have an awareness of something. You see it, and you're, you, ha- you have it in your mind. This is good, I want it. I want to eat this food, I want to I wanna drive that car, I want to understand this amazing piece of knowledge. Okay, you suddenly have an awareness of it, and you have an awareness and a conviction that it's good, it's something you want. So now you have that awareness, it, lights up your emotions. The awareness triggers the emotions, and now your emotions are like, yeah, this is exciting, let's go for it, let's study. (laughs) So now, in order to implement that, you have to now move it up back to your brain. And once it comes to your brain for thinking, that's when letters first appear. Letters are not there until then. Until then, it's just simple prelingual. Awareness, 
emotion and only once it's processed into your emotion is it now put into letter form for your brain to think about in a specific language and for your uh, emotions to process or for you actually to speak it out. So that desire is not in the brain, it's, it's like above the brain. Right. No, the desire the is in the brain. It's, in the it's brain. after it's it, even created into words. That's the desire. You're saying the desire even before it's created into words. Right. So it's, it's triggered by the brain, by the brain's awareness. No, of but something. the desire is already after it's created into words because the first level is being that not knowing that exists. Only when we know about it, then the desire comes into words, and then that. Only when that we know desire. right. Well, only when we know about it does the desire come into desires, but no words yet. There's still no words. It's first awareness of something that you say, this is it. This is really good. When your mind says, this is good, all of a sudden your emotions are like, yeah, I want it. Once you feel like I want it, just think of the, the, the we're not, it's not an emotion, we're not, let's say it's an emotion, the, the basic feeling of hunger. The basic feeling of hunger is prelingual, just you feeling a hunger without having processed it yet. Yeah, I haven't eaten since you know, whatever, and, and this is what I want to eat. Pre that, it's just a simple desire that has no words. Once you recognize the desire, now you want to implement it. In order to implement it, you need words. So now it, the desire, prelingual desire, rises up to the brain for your brain to think about in language and then to plan how are you going to implement it with words or with action. It is only at this point when one applies his thoughts to implementing his desire that letters are born in one's mind, corresponding to the language of each of the nations who employ these letters when speaking and thinking about everything in the world, meaning each of us thinks in his own language. Pure feeling, however... That is feeling that has not yet reached the applied implement. Oh, I'm sorry. Pure feeling, however, that is feeling that has not yet reached the applied implemental stage of thought, transcends differences of nation and language, since it does not express itself in letters. From all this, we may understand that the altar of the altar of a statement earlier that a spoken word is utterly without value in comparison with soul's intellectual and emotional powers, which are described here for our purposes as the essence of the soul. Surely when the divine word by which God creates and animates all the worlds has no value at all next to God who is, true, who is truly and absolutely infinite. Thus all the worlds created and sustained by the divine word are as if non-existent from God's perspective and their perspective, presence does not affect any change in his unity. This theme will be th further discussed in the following chapter. I didn't finish everything that we have to say on this chapter because time is up. But we're not going to start next chapter yet until we fully explain the analogy because we have to understand some stuff. We've come to understand that one, all of creation is but a word of Hashem. And what is a word of Hashem? What is a word? Let's look at our own experience. What is our one utterance compared to who we are? Nothing in compared to our power of speech. Even less of a nothing when compared to a thought. And how very, very nothing when compared to the essence of who we are. But now we're a little bit puzzled still because... When you say something has little value measured against something that has greater value, how could you say it's non-existent? So, cliffhanger. We're going to finish up next week. <laughs> Any questions? Yeah. I have a question. So, um, the Hachma being that dot, you're saying it's still like about in the brain, because the, like, the, the Yetzirah Ra is acting, like, it sounds like the Yetzirah To and the Yetzirah Ra are acting at this bilingual stage, like a, a bad desire could come up. That's right. right. But the Yetzirah Ra is in the right side of the heart. So, somehow it has access to Okay, the that's a very good question. So, you're saying that um, the Yetzirah Ra works even on a prelingual slate, including our mind. There's a very different level, a very different method by which the Yetzirah Ra uses our mind and the way the Yetzirah Tov uses our mind, or on a more general stage, the way our animal soul uses our mind and the way our divine soul uses our mind. In both, in, in the Yetzirah Ra, so I'm going to call it in the animal soul because the Yetzirah Ra is just a drive of the animal soul. In the animal soul, it does need an awareness of something to want it. That's why we don't surround ourselves with bad images because we don't want to be pulled or affected by the, the things that are in our, within our awareness. The way it uses the mind is once it has this awareness, it just it, it gets the emotion for it. And now it uses the mind as a tool to implement its 
emotions, its, its desires and what it wants to fuel itself. The divide soul too works with a simple awareness, but the, the, what sparks the awareness of the divine soul is less readily available. It's, that's the struggle of life because what sparks the animal soul is all these material worlds. It's always there in our conscious view all the time. To spark our divine soul, we need to seek out things that are sparking our awareness. We, it's not, you, you know. Like coming to your view, <laughs> yeah, which is like learning right. Torah. Yeah, learning Torah. Learning Torah it sparks our awareness. If we're not giving, you know, like if, you're not, if you're not, we're not giving our divine soul material for awareness, how are we bringing its emotions into play? It's like the colleague of the Alter Rebbe, Rebbe Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev, was known to be the lover of the Jewish people, always the defender of the Jewish people, always saying things to Hashem to say, look how beautiful your people are. Like, for example, he once, he once saw a guy outside of Shul in his talus and tefillin um, fixing the wheel of his wagon. So one person might walk by that guy and say, how irreverent. I mean, in the middle of prayer, he's standing here and he's fixing the wheel. Rabbi Levi Yitzchak from Bartichev sees him and he says, Hashem, look how special your people are. Even when he fixes the wheel of his wagon, he's thinking about you. <laughs> so this is what he said to Hashem. He said, Master of the universe, you did something that not right. You took the temptations of the world and you put it in front of our eyes. And, and heaven and hell, you hid in a little book called Rashi's Chachma. He said, I swear by my beard that if you would have put heaven and hell out there for all of us to see and the temptations in the world of in a little book, no one would be sinning. <laughs> so that's the problem. What sparks our awareness for the animal soul is so readily available. And what sparks our awareness for our divine soul is something that we have to seek. We have to work to spark our awareness to then trigger our d- divine emotions. But that's probably why they say like Hashem created sin, but the antidote for sin was Torah. So That's that, right. Like, you can't because it's the same mechanism. So if you like pull yourself into the Beit Midrash or open the Torah where you're wanting something sinful, like it's taking over the that the one mechanism. That's right. Thank you so much for that. That's exactly it. It says that in the Talmud. It says that Hashem created the Yetzirah, but He created as an antidote for that Torah Tavlin, the spice of Torah. And it just if it's bothering you, it says if that. In the manuval, in that disgusting one is bothering you, drag him to the base medrash. <laughs> so that's, that's what it is. Is it um, Slichot Saturday night? Or is it it's this Saturday, Saturday night, right? Could you believe it? It's almost Rosh Hashanah. Wow. Today is exactly 12, 12 days till Rosh Hashanah. So starting from, I'm coming to you. Starting from today is we have, you take, pick, we go through the whole year every single day to do uh, uh, recalculation and see, you know, what is it that I have to fix from last year, Tishrei, and from last year, each month by month, one day at a time, till we get to Rosh Hashanah, and we're so perfect. <laughs> oh, the 40 days of Selichos, yes, the Sephardim do it starting from Rosh Chodesh El. And those are corresponding to the 40 days when Moshe went up to beg God for forgiveness, and the 40th day, this first day is Rosh Chodesh El, and the 40th day is Yom Kippur. And Debbie had a question. Yeah, no, um, you were saying the essence of our soul is intellect and emotion. Mm-hmm. You said, um, you said understanding is beyond that? or I mean, Oh, understanding is intellect. It is. Okay. And it's prelingual. So when you understand something, it's your very soul that understands. That's why I can speak to you in a, in a certain language, but when you come to understand, it's beyond language already. It's, it's, a, it's beyond yeah. language. Yeah. Okay. So understanding is beyond language, but thinking is still within the letters of language. Got it. Thank you. Thank you. So good to see you, Faith. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank good to see you, Jill. It's been such a long time. Mwah. So good to see you. Mwah. I'm blowing kisses. Because we need a lot. Did you say this? I, no. Your, your lesson.